This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. You know, more than 100,000 people in the United States are waiting for a kidney transplant. And sadly, some of them will die just waiting for that transplant because there are not enough donors out there. But some new advances in the way kidney transplants are being done is making a difference. And joining us to explain more about all of this is Dr. Vaughn Whitaker. He's Assistant Professor of Surgery specializing in hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery and transplant services at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Whitaker. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you. I know you've been with us before, and we've talked about some of these ideas, and I wanted to revisit these very important breakthroughs because the goal here is to shorten that list of people waiting. And so some things have happened most recently to allow that to happen. But before we go there, help us understand why living donation is so important. Living donation, thank you for having me, first of all. Living donation is very important because, for one, this is an unlimited uh, source of um, organs to alleviate this over 100,000 people who are waiting and dying. 21 people die per day waiting for an organ. The second issue is living donor organs are of higher quality. These are from healthy persons. They last longer. They, the bonds that are created are, are priceless. Um, so from that point of view, these organs last longer the patients who get them will need to be retransplanted less frequently. And so you get less stress on the system because these organs essentially last for a very long time. And I think it, must, it needs to be stated that all of us only need one kidney to live. So we have, and we have two. So the idea is it really doesn't necessarily do any harm to the donor and gives life basically to the recipient. That's true. We have two kidneys. The first kidney donor in 1954 um, died at age in his 80s and unrelated to his renal transplant after he donated in his 20s. And the kidney transplant itself does have a high success rate, I mean, in terms of basically helping the, that individual, the recipient, to lead a, a more normal life. Absolutely. The, the, the publicly available information, SRTR, shows this over 98% success rate in the first year, um, and it's for children is virtually 100%. So what are the greatest stumbling blocks that you found to finding living donors? I mean, is it that people are afraid? I mean, what, what seems to be in the way of this? I think there, that, that's a correct assessment. There's an element of fear, um, fear of how much harm will come to them as a result of doing this procedure. Um, there is a fear of pain. There is a fear of um, not being able to work, especially if you are from an economically challenging situation. Um, there is a fear of um, death, really. Um, and then, of course, there is family um, that you need to overcome um, who may not think this is a good idea. I want to get to a lot of that, those kinds of concerns as a little bit later, but what I want to talk about right now immediately is there have been some breakthroughs that have enabled you um, to find more methodologies for making these kinds of, where there were, there were stumbling blocks before in terms of certain issues, in terms of finding good matches. For example, this whole idea of blood type compatibility. There have been changes. Explain that to us. Absolutely. 
Um, in the past, we would tell patients if they came with a relative or a friend or, or anyone who came with them, if they're not of a compatible blood group. So, for example, if you're a blood group O, that person needs to be a, a blood group O in order to donate. Um, now that has changed tremendously. It doesn't matter what the blood type of your donor is. Um, there are more than one ways we can actually proceed with getting this um, transplant done. One of the ways is to is to get rid of some of the antibodies that you would naturally have towards that particular donor, or we can perform what we call swaps. So basically, that has been taken off the table as a problem. The other thing that I thought was a fascinating breakthrough is this whole idea of pairs, and eventually this whole idea of chains. Explain what I mean. So, you know, these are performed usually out of the the abundance of goodness of someone's heart. And in fact, we have two coming up. We have two persons who have come forward um, to say, I want to donate my kidney. And because they've come forward, what we're able to then do is give, and we call these donors altruistic donors, we're able to give their organ, especially if they're a blood group O, which means they can give to anyone, to someone who is in an incompatible pair situation. So they have a donor, so let's say someone is a blood group A and their donor is a blood group B. That blood group O altruistic donor who has come forward can then give to the A recipient and then the B donor who was originally incompatible can then now give to someone who is a blood group B who may have an incompatible um donor pair. So the, excuse me, the bottom line now here is that by making these matches kind of almost across larger populations, you can find, basically you can create compatible pairs where there were none before. Absolutely. And you get this domino effect of positivity where um, the altruistic donor is able to give to one incompatible pair and then that donor in that incompatible pair can then give to another incompatible pair, and that can continue for a very long, long time. So it sets up almost a chain, a, a chain effect. Exactly. And the other very significant change, it seems to me, is this idea that you don't have to necessarily do it in the same institution at the same moment. That is exactly true. It can be done um, across institutions, even across continents. Um, this is not commonly done, but it has been reported that um, it, it can be done. The, the kidney can be flown across the Atlantic. Um, right now, it's most commonly performed within the continental United States, and it doesn't have to happen during the same sitting. It can happen weeks or, or, or months um, afterwards. So it, when you say weeks or months, how long can they keep a kidney alive and well, functional? Well, I mean, one pair can... Oh, one pair can ...can take, happen, and right. then the, 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 the next... The right. next part of the domino right. effect can then right. happen in a different moment in time. So there's been such a, um, an increased demand for kidneys. Explain that. Why? In this, basically all worldwide, but in this country specifically. Right. Um, you know, if you look at the graph, we see that from the... We've been tracking this since the 1980s. There's been an exponential explosion of those who have been added to the wait list. For one thing, um, people are more confident about uh, the, the, the transplant it has come to, to become a mainstream medical team. So more people are being referred um, for transplantation. The other thing is uh, people are living longer. Um, and dialysis treatments and management of 
of patients um, is getting better. So patients are actually living longer on dialysis, and and um, the government actually mandates that transplant be an option. But isn't it also true that we have more people who are diabetic and maybe who are, you know, due to obesity or what have you and end up in renal um, failure? And I probably should have mentioned that first. There is actually an increase in the number of patients who are iller, um, more diabetics. In fact, there's a concern that by 2040, the number of diabetics is going to be so much more. And this is being fueled in part by the by the um, obesity epidemic. Um, for one, you know, during this time, because of this, we're facing the notion, um, because of childhood obesity, that we may have a generation that has a, a shorter lifespan compared to previous generations. And there's a new system that's been put in place, though, to help another way of helping with this list, and it has to do with the, there is a new kidney allocation system. Explain that. So the new kidney allocation system came into place in December 2014, and um, this seeks to make kidneys more available to groups that were prior um, more disadvantaged. So, for example, children, they have been made as, as they ought to be a priority in getting the best organs. So the best organs typically are from the younger donors, deceased donors. The other group that has benefited greatly in this regard are African Americans. Um, they tended to be on dialysis for much longer periods of time. In the previous system, your wait time was counted from the time you actually registered or you came to the transplant center and said, I want to be um, on the transplant list, regardless of how long you had been on dialysis prior to that. Now it's been changed. It's, it's based on the length of time you've been on dialysis. And what this is, this has benefited the African-American groups because they tended as a group, when it compared, compared it to other groups, to have some of the longest dialysis um, times. The other group that benefited greatly from this, um, patients who have high levels of antibodies who will wait 10, 15 years um, to get a match um, now have been given national priority. So instead of just enjoying local and regional priority, they now have national priority. And whenever a kidney becomes available nationally, they get to see whether or not they're a match. So their wait time is uh, much, much shorter. That's, that sounds like it's made a big difference. So one other point I think we started to talk about, people being afraid to be a kidney donor. I think along with this new allocation system, it must be noted that if you do give a kidney, you would be put to the very top of the list should you run into trouble. In other words, if you're a donor and you run into trouble, you would be at the very top to receive a kidney. Absolutely. Um, whenever you donate an organ, this is true. You... If you ever need an organ at any point in time, you will be given priority for getting an organ. So how does it, exactly how does somebody become a kidney donor? What are you looking for? You know, what kind of person do you need to be the donor? Tell us about that. Anyone can be a kidney donor. All they have to do is be willing to, to, to do it. Um, be over 18, be relatively healthy, um, be, encourage people to, um, to be lean, essentially, um, not be overweight, or if you're overweight, to lose some weight. Um, diabetics, um, we don't take kidneys from diabetics. Um, but generally, um, healthy, free of any cancers, free of any infections, 
and um, that and be willing. The most important thing is just being willing. Um, typically, we don't ask patients to necessarily screen themselves, but just call the transplant center, and um, and we have many great professionals who are will will comb through your medical records with 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 very fine tooth comb and. Um, if there are any issues, we'll, 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 we'll raise them with you. So willingness and being uncoerced is very important and probably having a support system around you to, to support you through it. But what is it, what's it like for a donor? What do they actually go, you know, what do they go through? So initially, the donors come in. They, they indicate to us that they are willing. They go through that screening process. If it's a go, there are no indi- contraindications identified. They're invited to come in to do some preliminary blood tests to get their blood type. We also want to check your urine, um, a 24-hour urine collection or some other method of checking how well your kidney functions. Um, once we've established that your kidney functions well and there are no major contraindications, we then have UCO providers. And um, typically, once you've gotten through that, we also want you to see your social worker or dietitian and um, other members of the multidisciplinary team. If you can go through that without any issues, you're found to have a good support system then um, you're a go. And what happens to you? How soon after you make that kind of initial foray might you undergo surgery? It could be as short as uh, four months, four four weeks um, into into coming forward. And what's it like for the donor, though? I mean, how long is the hospitalization? Just briefly, I don't want to run out of time. Just give us a, a thumbnail of what happens. Uh, two to three days you're in a hospital. The surgery lasts about four hours. We do it by these mini incisions laparoscopically um, so you're able to be back to yourself um, usually in short order usually been two to six we give you six weeks off but generally speaking patients are able to move around and be able to do their regular activity within two weeks so basically how can people find out more about how to become a kidney donor you can call us um, at the transplant center at 315-464-5413 and ask to speak to a living transplant coordinator or any other surgeons or nephrologists. And there are people who have donated kidneys who are now coming forward to help explain what the experience is like for someone who's interested? Absolutely, and we have lots of living donors who are doing this. In fact, this past Monday we had one such session and we had two of our living donors, um, Jody Adams and um, Nicole Doty, who came forward, and um, they shared their experiences. That was very, very interesting. And I'm sure very helpful to those who are considering it. Dr. Whitaker, thank you so very much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Vaughn Whitaker, Assistant Professor of Surgery, specializing in hepatobiliary, pancreatic surgery, and transplant services at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. <laughs>